Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm very excited about the expert we have with us today, and I'm going to go ahead and ask him to introduce himself and share a little bit about his role at the University of Michigan. Great. Thanks, Erica. Um, my name is Johnny Sexton. I'm a faculty member in internal medicine in the division of gastroenterology and hepatology. Um, I also um, have another appointment in the College of Pharmacy in medicinal chemistry. And so those two things really, um, you know, one leg in each camp of, of, uh, of, of medicinal chemistry and also in our disease space, which is gastroenterology and hepatology. Um, really sums up what what I do at University of Michigan. And then the other role um, that I have is as the director of um, co-director of the U of M Center for Drug Repurposing, which was um, originally founded by George Mashur. And Kevin Weatherwax and I um, are, are the co-directors of um, the U of M Center for Drug Repurposing. And it was just founded in 2019 with the mission of addressing unmet medical needs using um, existing drugs and, and also to just help propel um, basic science research into um, specific diseases as well as, um, you know, provide some uh, uh, potential translation for, uh, for unmet medical needs. So you joined Michigan Minds in the spring of 2020 to discuss the Center for Drug Repurposing, which you mentioned in your intro, and how drug therapies could combat COVID-19. As you've continued that research, can you explain what you've discovered? Absolutely. It it was it's a it was a really exciting study. You know, we we had just um, just formed the U of M Center for Drug Repurposing and just built the infrastructure to do this kind of work, and then we're faced with this absolute moonshot of a drug repurposing goal, which is to find um, small molecules drugs that are commonly available. Um, you know, are, are able to be prescribed, which that, that may have um, uh, antiviral effects in either a direct antiviral effects or also could potentially mitigate the, um, the in, in, inflammatory response that, that COVID patients experience. And so that's what we sought out to do. And um, we had just recently published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science um, where we detailed exactly what we discovered there. And we discovered some, um, some drugs there. And we reported that pretty early on uh, on BioArchive, which is a preprint server. And, uh, but you know, now that it's been published, there's been time that the research community has sort of um, recognized what, what we've discovered has uh, launched clinical studies. And you know, just to be clear, our work was um, in vitro work. So this was based on a human cell infection model. And very often there's a disconnect between um, the kind of efficacy that we observe in a dish with, um, you know, efficacy in human beings, right? And that's why um, the randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical studies are absolutely critical um, because there have been lots of discoveries. And we reported um, 17 drugs that have, uh, we feel, high potential for translation because they fit our criteria for um, translatability to human beings. And, and this is a really important aspect that 
I don't think has been covered a whole lot. Um, there have been reports of, of, uh, of drugs that have efficacy, but one of the problems with some of these uh, reports from in vitro studies is that the dosage that would be required to achieve efficacy in a human being based on the potency that they exhibited in a dish just doesn't work. So if the drug is not potent enough to achieve a, uh, that similar concentration in a human being, then what happens is you have basically zero chance of observing efficacy there. So this unfortunately was the case with hydroxychloroquine. And you know, we predicted that early on. We published hydroxychloroquine early on. We said that, it, yes, it does have in vitro efficacy, but it's just not potent enough so that when it translates to a human being, the dose would have had to have been 10 times what the dose um, you know, would, would have been in, you know, in our dish, which of course is well above the safety limit for drugs, which we call the no adverse effect limit or you know, in the conventional prescribing guidelines. And so, that's, um, so from that study, we selected the most promising 17 and then carried them forward into additional studies where we used, um, instead of screening in cancer cell lines, we translated those to um, testing in very highly physiologically relevant um, lung tissue models. You know, lung is the primary site of infection and there's a specific cell type there called a type two pneumocyte. And um, in working with Jason Spence's lab and specifically Tristan Frum um, in his lab, he's a postdoctoral fellow there, were able to generate these highly physiologically relevant lung cells and determine they still had efficacy there. And so, um, so from everything that we discovered, we, we confirmed and then prioritized based not only on their, their potency and efficacy in multiple cell systems, um, but also from what we know about how these drugs are prescribed and what concentration that we can achieve in a human being. And all of that has to work in order to generate a clinically testable hypothesis. So I'll give you a couple of examples of compounds that um, we were very interested in. So the, um, the first one and was one of the main subjects of our recent publication um, is, is, was a dietary supplement called lactoferrin. So <clears throat> lactoferrin is a very interesting protein. It's a natural protein in human physiology. It's found in uh, its highest concentration in colostrum breast milk. So this is the first breast milk um, that, that, uh, uh, that, that happens and, and lactoferrin is very well studied. And what it does is it helps to bridge innate and adaptive immunity in infants uh, while their adaptive immune system is booting up. Right, so it has antiviral and um, antibacterial properties, and what we found is that uh, is that lactoferrin worked better than uh, than than anything else that we studied, which was remarkable because it's widely available as a dietary supplement. So that was very interesting and very encouraging, and so we are um, currently working on two clinical studies, uh, one here at home at U of M, and then another international study. Um, to establish uh, human efficacy. And before we have that solid grounding in, uh, in, in human efficacy from a properly controlled clinical study, you know, we, we can't make any recommendation that people should go out and take this, but um, it certainly is a, a very highly tolerated, um, well-tolerated dietary supplement. And I th we think it has a lot of, of interesting promise for, um, for you know, treating 
um, SARS-CoV-2 and all the, the, the variants of concern. We've tested it against all of the variants of concern. So this is like the Delta variant and the South African and the UK strain and the Hong Kong strain and the initial Washington strain. It works against all of them. So that's really important. And um, so what we're working on right now is to detect a sign of efficacy in a clinical study where then we can justify going and, and doing a larger scale study and where what I think is, is the, uh, the best use for something like lactoferrin is for prophylaxis, is for prevention. Um, so it is so well tolerated that um, it can very, uh, very readily be um, broadly disseminated. And because of the way that lactoferrin works, it actually inhibits the entry of virus into the cells it, it, it is perfect for prophylaxis in just preventing the spread of virus. And that's one thing that we know right now, if we had an effective prophylactic, then uh, we wouldn't have the spread of these variants of concern, even amongst vaccinated people. We know that the Delta variant um, can infect vaccinated people. And while they generally remain asymptomatic, which is great and a testament to the vaccine's efficacy, um, the, uh, they can still be transmissible, right? And so even in vaccinated people, it would be fantastic if we had an effective and extremely safe uh, prophylactic that would cut down on the transmission. So that's like one of the big cornerstones of our recent findings is, um, is, is lactoferrin, this totally natural protein and commercially available um, dietary supplement. And um, I'll tell you maybe one, um, a couple more. <laughs> um, Another one is uh, actually in a paper we published in November of 2020, also in um, the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. With um, and, and this was when we started our collaboration with Dr. Arul Chanayan, who is um, you know in, in our uh, our cancer center here. He runs an absolute powerhouse lab of of cancer research and is a really inspirational guy. Um, we. We, we noticed early on that there was some commonality between signaling in prostate cancer and in SARS-CoV-2. And, and so we published a paper about that and, and also tested some drugs that treat prostate cancer like enzalutamide, aptalutamide, and proxalutamide. So we published that story um, back in November last year. And what has happened since was extremely exciting. The um, the, there's a company called Kintor, who uh, they're a Chinese pharmaceutical company who have one of the drugs that we tested um, uh, in clinical development in phase three for uh, prostate cancer. And they decided to run both an inpatient and an outpatient clinical study um, in Brazil. So at that time, uh, Brazil was a hotspot for, um, for uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. So they ran um, several clinical studies in Brazil, and surprisingly, in the inpatient study, there was a 77% reduction in mortality. So that means in the subjects who, and these are, this is in hospitalized context, so these patients already uh, hospitalized, um, if they were on proxalutamide versus placebo, they had a 77% ch less chance of death. Which was, which was absolutely remarkable. 
there was another clinical study that they did. And, and this was a pretty substantial clinical study. It was almost 300 patients in each arm. So this is a phase two clinical study and it's, it's you know, uh, pr pretty reasonably sized for, for you know, a, a, like a phase two A study like this. Um, and then they also ran an outpatient study. And in the outpatient study, um, they, they showed that uh, it very effectively prevents hospitalization, the need for hospitalization. So again, placebo controlled, and, uh, and, and they, they were able to, to demonstrate that when the subjects were getting proxalutamide, they just did not have to admit to the hospital as frequently. So also massive reduction. So that was really exciting um, that came directly out of our in, in vitro work. And that really shows that um, the type of drug discovery and drug repurposing that we're doing and also this sophisticated approach that we use that relies on artificial intelligence and machine learning um, uh, really leads to much more translatable hits. You know, we start with very physiologically relevant models of disease. So we're using human cells and human tissue as the platform for drug discovery. And then we use our um, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches to help us prioritize to detect efficacy where it may not be obvious. And then uh, from there, um, you know, that, that has, uh, you know, led to already one clinical success. There's another group that's testing enzalutamide, another drug in the same class um, in Europe. And we're really interested and eager to, um, to hear about those results. Maybe one more example is, uh, and, and this is another goal of the Center for Drug Repurposing is that um, when we make a discovery like this, we want to, um, there's a chance that we can find real-world efficacy. And, and so uh, there was one drug in particular, it's called um, ipratropium bromide, also known as Atrovent. Atrovent is a very commonly prescribed drug for asthma and COPD. So it's a bronchodilator and it's like normally delivered as a rescue inhaler, um, sometimes as, you know, as a, in a nebulizer as well. But um, this drug had remarkable and incredibly potent efficacy um, in preventing um, SARS-CoV-2 from infecting human cells. So we were very excited about this one because um, not only was it extremely effective in vitro, but it's already formulated to deliver directly to the lungs, which is exactly where you need it. So in this case, we have uh, we have to go into our electronic health record system and also do this in a big national database. And what we're doing currently is we're going to detect signs of efficacy there, say, hey, look, we have patients that are, uh, have COPD and asthma. We can't compare them directly to um, a healthy cohort um, because they may have a different disease progression because of this underlying comorbidity, right? So... Um, we picked another drug called albuterol, which is another very commonly prescribed drug for the same condition to compare them with. And we're currently looking for any difference in outcomes between patients on, on albuterol versus atrovent. And if we find a signal there, I think um, it will be another, another reason to go ahead and initiate a, another phase two clinical study to look for um, efficacy in, um, you know, in a, in a, in a robust clinical trial setting. So that's one of the things that we do in the Center for Drug Repurposing. When we get a hit like this, 
we can go out into the real world, go look at electronic health record data to go, um, first of all, to demonstrate that it's safe in these patients with this condition, with, you know, when you put together COPD or asthma with SARS-CoV-2, um, it's nice to know that if there are people walking around who have this drug on board and also have this disease condition that it's compatible, we're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna injure them. So that's our number one priority is safety. And then after we establish safety, then we can, um, we can detect any sign of efficacy there. And this just generates a clinically testable hypothesis for us where we can say, hey, look, we've got enough rationale and motivation to, um, to go, uh, go set up a pilot clinical study, small scale phase two clinical trial to go test the efficacy. So, um, you know, I could go on, there's many more, but those are some of the three things that, um, you know, some of the three highlights from this manuscript. And we really love it when, uh, when we find a drug that um, may also have a do double duty. And so Atrovent is one of those because um, not only, you know, may it have direct antiviral effects, meaning that it will block the infection of SARS-CoV-2 and block the spread the cell to cell spread of infection, but it also has the, you know, it also, its primary function is a, as a bronchodilator, which will help increase oxygen saturation in a patient who needs it, right? So. That's incredibly remarkable. And there are so many different aspects and elements in into those findings. And with this being so groundbreaking, I just want to ask you, what is your experience working on this effort been like, and how does it feel to have this outcome? You know, it was really an amazing experience. Um, number one, I've never worked harder in my life. Um, this was this happened during the research shutdown, and so we were um, basically in the building all by ourselves. And uh, it, so it was it was a strange environment. We had uh, just you know heroic levels of effort involved. And normally in science, you know, the way that we do science. Um, you know, you have a supervisor, a PI, and they are supervising trainees um, and technicians and computational people and, you know, you know, in biomedical sciences. And uh, very often the way it works is that, is that you'll have either small teams or, or um, you'll have individuals that are focused on their own science. And, um, and, and everybody makes their individual progress and publishes papers and, and that, you know, constitutes productivity. But in this case, um, we had a, a sole focus where everyone, including myself with my own research interests, we dropped everything and pulled together as a team and everybody chipped in in the way that they could and everybody gave an incredible amount of effort. And so it was really humbling for me as, you know, as the, 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 the leader to see um, how passionate and the amount of dedication that people put into this, even though this wasn't necessarily their own science. And, uh, and so that was really um, just amazing to see. And we all got very, very close. We, we um, you know, just uh, were able to, to really function incredibly well as a team. You know, we were all extremely motivated, just wanting to do uh, a public service and try to um, you know, make an impact in the progression of the pandemic. And, uh, and, and it's really just, a, 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 it was an amazing experience. And um, Michigan is just the place 
where this kind of thing can happen because other universities that don't have the magnitude of the infrastructure that we have just couldn't pull something like this off because it was an absolute, you know, a, a, you know, heroic effort, you know, all the way around that relied on amazing infrastructure. So, um, you know, we, we, we had a confluence of, of uh, events that, that really um, put us in a prime position to make a difference. And uh, the, the team worked so incredibly hard and all of our collaborators, you know, were, were just amazing where we all sort of checked our own goals and had this sole focus. So it was a really unique um, kind of science from what I've ever done. You know, we've never really operated under this kind of condition, but it was really inspiring. Can you elaborate on the advantage of repurposing existing FDA approved drugs compared to the drug development process? Sure, yeah. Um, so the, the, the primary advantage, you know, we use drug repurposing um, for many different purposes. Um, the main purpose is to, is to find a new use for an old drug. And what that does is that uh, cuts the time from the kind of work that we do at the bench side to the bedside, to clinical implementation. Conventional drug discovery generally takes a decade and billions of dollars. So in our role in as academic drug discovery um, people, we have to um, th this is an area where we can make a big impact. Uh, if we discover a, uh, a, a drug, an existing drug that for disease that is an unmet medical need, it can be very rapidly deployed. And, and you know, as you can see from what we've done, we went from the, from the bench to the bedside in under a year. Uh, and so, and this is all the way, this is not to just a phase one clinical trial for safety, this is all the way to a phase two study. So it really has the ability to very rapidly address this kind of unmet medical need. So that's sort of the main advantage um, is that it de delivers us with clinically testable hypotheses um, where you know, we have to work with the FDA to make sure that this is safe. And, uh, but we don't have to do all those safety studies because it's already a very well-known quantity. Um, and, and so, uh, we just have to ensure that it's safe in this specific patient population, and then generally, um, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's doable. So that's the main thing. Another thing that we use drug repurposing for quite a bit is to is to help us understand disease and disease processes better. So it's done quite a bit in in the, in the context of basic science research. Um, just to give you an example, we have a um, we have a collaboration with Joshi Alamkal, also in the cancer center, and also doing prostate cancer research, where um, he is studying a very interesting and specific form of prostate cancer, and we're still learning about the um, the etiology of the disease. And so, one of the things that a drug repurposing screen can do is it can tell us about what mechanisms biological um, pathways, molecular pathways, and molecular targets are influencing the disease state. And so it also can produce compounds that we can test um, for efficacy in clinical trials, but also, you know, it helps inform what, um, you know, how, how is this disease working? And so this concept we call 
uh, chemical genomics, right? Where we're not looking for genes that influence the disease, but you by using drugs that we, we understand how they work, it can give us some insight into the disease progression that can lead to more, more basic science research, but then also certainly delivers shots on goal for, um, uh, for testing in the clinic. And was that also the case for the SARS-CoV-2 virus throughout all of this research in, uh, into all of, you know, whether these different, the uh, effectiveness of these different drugs, did it help understand any different aspects of the virus and how it spreads or how it mutates? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. So, um, you know, we had that direct benefit of generating clinically testable hypotheses, but, but as you say, um, it also illuminated several very interesting aspects of, of, uh, of the disease. And so one of those is, is uh, uh, through this work, it helped to explain why uh, uh, males over 65 years old and particularly smokers had worse outcomes. And so this was, is relating back to um, our November 2020 paper that showed that, um, that androgen signaling, which is male hormone signaling, um, can influence the infection process because there are two factors that are required for, um, for a cell to be infected. One is called ACE2, which you know everybody knows about ACE2. It's the binding site for... Um, for the spike protein on the virus. And then the other is uh, a protease that does uh, a pre-processing step to allow the virus to get in the cell. And, uh, and that's called TMPRSS2. And so what we saw from this drug screen was that, um, that, that the higher the androgen signaling, um, the greater the expression of these two um, entry factors were. So what that means is that sh that predicts that the people, the population who has the highest androgen signaling in their lungs, um, is you know are, are going to be the most uh, permissive to SARS-CoV-2 infection and may indeed have worse outcomes. And so that seems to explain that. So um, through this kind of, of screening with with drugs, you know, we were really able to put together you know that mechanism uh, and explain why some people are, are, are worse off. And, and that also led to the, um, to the, the hypothesis that these, um, prostate cancer drugs could be repurposed in the context of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, and may, may, um, reduce infection by doing exactly that. If, if androgen signaling is enhancing the ACE2 expression on a cell surface that makes them more infectious, well, by inhibiting that, we should be able to take those um, those, those, the expression level of ACE2 and TMPRSS2 down so that the cells are just less infectious. They're less permissive to a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so, um, so that was re really the first observation. And then it led to the, to the hypothesis that, Hey, look, we, we should be trying to modulate, uh, this hormone signaling in, uh, in, in, in human beings with the drug. As our time comes to an end, I want to ask one more question. And that is what, what are the top few takeaways that you want listeners to have from all of this information? Yeah, I mean, one thing is that is that we as a, a society need to invest in more basic science research. 
um, the re one of the reasons that we have all of the drugs that we do is because the basic science has happened uh, to associate uh, the targets of these drugs with particular diseases that have led to the development of all of these drugs. If we uh, don't invest in basic science research, then um, then there will be you know no more targets for drugs, and that hinders the drug development process. So we really rely on the basic scientists to figure out the mechanisms of disease, and and that allows us opportunity for drug discovery. And when drug discovery happens, that adds more compounds to our library, and this really can impact how we do translational research, right? So. Um, without all that basic science, then it, it's very hard for us to do the translational science, the translational medicine that we need to do. And, you know, one of the, the things that where this can have a really big impact is in, is in global health. Um, you know, there, there are many, many diseases that are, are um, you know, where, where they don't have approved therapies or their unmet medical needs um, uh, all across the world. And in um, one way that we can make a big impact as um, you know, a taxpayer funded university and, and, you know, doing academic drug discovery is that, is that we can go and find these kinds of drugs. And most of the drugs that we have are generic. So what that means is that they're, they're, um, they're cheap, they're generally shelf stable, and they can be deployed broadly. And so if we find rare diseases or tropical diseases or whatever the disease may be, um, you know, it's a first place to look when uh, when we start when we start drug discovery, and um, and it, and it's a way that we can help contribute back to this back to society, um, and and this can also fuel the development of new drugs. You have to start out with something, right? And we want to we want to um, try to address as many unmet medical needs as we can, and having uh, the first compound or uh, figuring out how diseases work using drugs is a great process that can um, potentially work um, and, and address the, the unmet medical need, but also you know, just fuels more, more basic science research and more translational research. Dr. Sexton, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and share all of this incredibly important information with our listeners and explain the remarkable work that you and your colleagues have been doing. Thank you for that. And again, just thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Erica. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.